Well, Father, as we've just sang, we are calling upon you. And this morning, in the remainder of the summer, we're going to be calling on you as the God of Joseph. Lord, would you speak to us today? May the words of my mouth, my heart, and the meditation of my heart, Lord, truly be pleasing in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer. And we want to hear from you now, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously, for the past few months, actually since last fall, we have been in the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus has been encouraging us in that gospel towards righteousness, telling us as he begins the gospel that we will be blessed by following him. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And as we saw just a couple of weeks ago, that by living like that, we are in fact now building our lives on the rock. And when those storms come, not if, when those storms come and beat upon that house, it is going to stand up. It is going to stand, withstand the pressure. And this summer, we're going to take a look now at a life of a guy who fulfills all of these characteristics. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He is pure in heart. He is a peacemaker. He seeks God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And so we're going to put it to the test, and we're going to see just how does it go for this guy. But before we get to him, I wonder if some of you uh, old, old, old timers, because <laughs> this even predates me, would remember a television show back in the 1950s called The Honeymooners, and uh, the Honeymooners featured a guy by the name of Ralph Cramden, a bus driver in New York City, and his buddy, uh, Ed Norton. Ed Norton worked in the sewers, okay? And if you don't remember the Honeymooners, then you might remember the Flintstones because that was a cartoon ripoff of the Honeymooners, basically the same, the same characters in prehistoric times. And Art Carney plays this, this happy-go-lucky, kind of dim-witted sewer worker and he once in one episode shared his philosophy of life, and it is summed up in a little poem that he recited. When the tides of life turn against you and the current upsets your boat, don't waste those tears on what might have been. Just lie on your back and float. And of course, being a sewer worker, that had all kinds of different meanings for someone like him. <laughs> Well, today we are going to start a series that will feature a man who repeatedly saw the tides of life turn against him, a man whose boat was upset more than once, a man whose difficulties arguably would have destroyed most people. And we're going to see that he didn't sink, that he didn't even float, he overcame and he rose above those waves of adversity. He overcame those difficulties because you could say of his philosophy of life, which had far more substance than that of Ed Norton. Who was this man? His name is Joseph. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 37. Take out your note cards and take some notes this morning. If you're joining us online, welcome. You can access all the material I'm talking about on the church app. So make sure you've downloaded that church app. We, are begin, we, we begin in chapter 37 by being introduced to Joseph when he is just 17 years old. And he is a young man who has been born into, uh, to put it mildly, a dysfunctional family. 
Okay. This is a, it, I mean, dysfunctional family doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of, of this family. It's pretty messed up. His mother, Rachel, who was his father's favorite wife, he had many of them, uh, she is dead. His daddy, Jacob, is now old and hasn't always been a godly man. Jacob was a deceiver. He stole his birthright. He's, he's a piece of work himself. And in fact, when we see him here, he has two wives and two concubines. A, a concubine could be uh, you know, somewhat compared to a mistress. They're, they're sort of a wife, but a lower status wife. And because of all these women, he was able to father 12 sons, uh, an unknown number of daughters, because they didn't tend to count those. And they're all of them, pretty much all of them, living under the same roof. Now, that would have been difficult enough for most families right there, but it's a little more complicated for Joseph. Because you see, in Joseph's case, his brothers didn't like him very much. And I wonder, I have to admit, that uh, if I grew up in a family and Joseph was there, maybe I wouldn't like him either. But I want to pick up the narration in the second part of chapter 2. And it says here that Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. So what we have here is Joseph is out in the fields with his brothers tending the flocks and the sons of his father's concubines, a couple of these other women, Bilhah and Zilpah, apparently Joseph saw them do something that they shouldn't have done. And so what does he do? He tells daddy, all right? And that certainly is going to make him popular right there. But verse 3 goes on, now Israel, and by the way, that is uh, Jacob. Uh, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Hence, these, these boys all become the sons of Israel, the children of Israel, if you will. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a multicolored tunic or coat, the coat of many colors. You may have heard of that. So Joseph is his daddy's favorite son, um, partially because his mother was Rachel, and that was his favorite wife. And the favoritism, obviously, it becomes painfully obvious because Joseph, or Jacob, gives Joseph this wonderful, fancy coat. Now, imagine, parents, what the dynamic would be in your house if you went out and you got one of your children the fanciest winter coat you could possibly find, and then for the other kids, you take them to the Goodwill and you say, you can have anything you want off the rack as long as it's not more than two bucks, okay? I mean, that would probably create a little bit of rift in the family. And I, I have no doubt that every time Joseph put that coat on, it was just one more reminder to his brothers that they weren't loved nearly as much as Joseph was. In fact, verse 4 tells us, And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, and so they hated him, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. And then in order sort of to add insult to injury, it would seem that even God himself favored Joseph over his brothers. God gives Joseph a couple of dreams. We see this in verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers... They hated him even more. He says to them, please, listen to this dream that I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf stood up, 
and also remained standing, and behold, your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to my sheaf. So here his brothers are having to hear that their, their sheaves of grain, or they themselves, are bowing down to Joseph. They knew exactly what this dream meant. And they begin hating him for that. Verse 8, then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you at really going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Joseph has a second dream. And now mom and dad get involved. Verse 9, and then he had yet another dream and informed his brothers of it. And he said, behold, I've had yet another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were all bowing down to me. So in this second dream, he envisions everybody in the family bowing down. And even Jacob, Israel, has an issue with that one. Verse 10, and he, said, and he also told to, to his father as well and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've had? Am I and your mother and your brothers actually going to come bow down on the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Apparently, it was these dreams that had caused the brothers' anger to finally boil over. Verse 12, then his brothers went to pasture. You could say they, they came, uh, it was the last straw, since we're talking about sheaves of grain, right? <laughs> and then his brothers went to, I just thought of that. And then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are your brothers not pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I'll send you to them. And he said, okay, father, I'll go. So skip down to verse 18. When the brothers saw Joseph from a distance, and before he came closer to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let's kill him, and let's throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, a vicious animal devoured him, and then we will see what will become of his dreams. Now, that's pretty, pretty intense. His dreams got them so angry that they couldn't even think straight, and their hatred for him, their jealousy for him was so strong that the first thing that comes to mind is, let's kill him. But the oldest of them, Reuben, he tries to reason with them. We see in verse 21, but Reuben heard this and he rescued Joseph out of their hands by saying, let's not take his life. And then Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that's in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And he said this so that later he might rescue him out of their hands to return to his father. Apparently Reuben wants to do the right thing. But even Reuben knows better than to stand up against his brothers. In fact, if you go back to chapter 34, you don't have to now, but you could check it out on your own, write it down, and you'll see that these guys are not above murder. They've already slaughtered uh, some people. So here's what they do. Take it, pick it up at verse 23. So they, it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the multicolored coat that was on him, and they took him and they threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. So they'd obviously not given up the idea of killing Joseph. Verse 25, and they sat down to eat a meal. But as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels carrying labdanum, resin, balsam, and myrrh. And they're on their way to bring these down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit us for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites 
and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother of our own flesh. It almost sounds noble, except when you realize what they're talking about here. You know, we we don't want his blood on our conscience, but instead, let's sell him to these guys. Let's make some money off of him, and he's out of our hair. And the brothers listened to him, verse 28. And then some Midianite traders passed by, and they pulled him out uh, out of the pit, lifted Joseph out, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and so they brought Joseph into Egypt. And we're going to pick up next week what begins happening in Egypt. Like I said, to say the least, Joseph has a pretty dysfunctional family here. Some of you I know can relate. And finally, they carry out their plot to deceive their father, which, you know, again, if you know anything about Jacob, you say, well, this guy deserves it. He is a deceiver. Okay, he's getting a taste of his own medicine here. Verse 31, so they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood, and they sent the multicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. And he examined it, and he said, it is my son's tunic. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, uh, and mourned for his son for many days. And then all of his sons and his daughters got up to comfort him. I mean, just look at the deception here. They know exactly what's going on, but they're comforting dad. Sorry, dad. It's happened. We, we all loved him so, didn't we? Jacob says, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So he wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites sold him, sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And as we're going to see this summer, over the next 13 years, Joseph will spend his life in slavery and in prison. And at the end of that time, it's interesting, we get an insight into how Joseph sees his experiences in life. He has a couple of children while he's in Egypt. And we look at how he named those children. In Genesis 41, and we'll get there in a few weeks, but I just want to give you a preview here. In Genesis 41, 51, it says that Joseph named the firstborn, put that up there, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, and that, that name Manasseh means to forget. For, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And then in verse 52, he goes on and says he he named the second Ephraim, and that means to be faithful. For, he said, God has made me, I'm sorry, fruitful, not faithful, fruitful. He has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You see, how did Joseph make it through this suffering? How did he make sense of the suffering that he was in? He didn't just lie on his back and float through it. No, he felt pain. He suffered. He was abused by his family. He knew grief. He knew sorrow. He knew loss. And as we examine the life of Joseph this summer, there's three things that I think we're going to realize over and over again concerning his experiences and his responses. And the first one is very personal, and it's this. What would we expect from Joseph? Going through, you you listen to what's happened to him. What would you expect we should, what, what do you think we should expect from him? I mean, you would think that Joseph's life and experience would at the very least have made him bitter and resentful, possibly even suicidal or dangerous. I mean, I've never counseled somebody with this level of of stress and and, uh, abuse in his life. Can you imagine what it would be like 
to be hated like this by your family? I know probably some of you can. You know, there's a lot of dysfunction, I'm sure, in the backgrounds of many of us in this room. But, but, to, but to be torn away from everything you know, to be torn away from your loving father, sold off to an alien culture with no hope of ever returning. Could you blame him, honestly, if he turned his back on everything he believed? Could you blame him if he decided to blame God and just curled up somewhere and gave up? I mean, after all, people do that all the time these days. I meet people all the time, and there's generally some, some experience they have had that ha if they were ever a follower of God in the past, something has turned them off to that. If God is a loving God, he wouldn't have done this. He wouldn't have allowed this to happen in my life. When faced with tragedies like this, that trite little poem by Ed Norton sounds just like that. It sounds very, very trite. Oh, I just float through life. Yeah, right. Like that's going to help. And yet think about this. My experience with many people is that when I give biblical advice to them from Jesus himself, sometimes to many people, that sounds like the same thing. Oh, yeah, just follow Jesus and everything will be okay. Yeah, right. And we do them a disservice if we suggest that somehow the Christian life has promised you everything you could ever want, all the blessings that you could ever want. We do them a disservice. We're setting them up because life, guys, is not like that. Do I really have to prove that to you? We know. We live in California after all, right? And the fact is, we would not be surprised if Joseph just gave up. In fact, I'll go further. That's what I would expect him to do. I did some study on Christian deconstruction, which is pretty popular these days when I taught that class a few months ago. And one of the things I heard over and over again from people giving their testimonies about why I have decided to deconstruct my faith, it's because they were going through experiences that paled in comparison to what we see Joseph going through here. But not Joseph. He doesn't do that. What do we, the second thing we're going to look at throughout this summer, what do we learn from Joseph? As we'll see in the account of Joseph this summer, even though he suffers greatly, we never see him defeated. We never see him despondent. And in fact, throughout all the pages of Scripture, there are only two major individuals. I mean, there's people that you don't hear a lot about. But, but uh, Joseph is a major character. He is, his story takes up nearly one-third of the book of Genesis, okay? He is a major character, and yet we see no negatives in his life. Now, that doesn't mean he was a perfect guy, okay? He, he had sin in his life. It's just that apparently his life was so exemplary that it wasn't necessary to write that out to, to humanize him. He really was a good guy. The only other character that's similar to that is Daniel, and it strikes me, those two individuals, jo uh, Joseph and Daniel, we see both of them when they were younger than some of the graduates we saw up here. Young guys serving the Lord. Never underestimate what young people can do. In fact, when he was sold into slavery, as we see, as we're going to see, he didn't just become a slave. He became the best slave he could possibly be. That was his mindset. 
And eventually, he rose in the ranks and became the master over the entire household. Later, when his master's wife falsely accuses him of rape, he is thrown into prison. He becomes the best prisoner there in the prison. He was eventually made the trustee over all the other prisoners. What we see over and over in his life is he never gave up. He never surrendered. He always persevered. And subsequently, he always overcame. And it wasn't because he laid on his back and floated through life. No, he didn't lay on his back and float, guys. He got on his knees and he prayed. He bowed before God and he trusted now, Joseph is often called the dreamer and because he has dreams, and, and dreams are going to serve him well, as we're going to see this summer. And so he's seen as a dreamer, but not a dreamer in the context that we often think of dreamers. He wasn't this hopeless optimist that ignored reality and just hoped that everything would turn out all right. People have problems, you see, with that kind of optimism. It seems so trite. It seems so unreasonable. And let's be honest, guys, they're right. We need to deal with the real world. And the people in our worlds that we are reaching out to need to know that we are dealing with the real world. We live in the same world they do. We are merely persevering. I remember seeing a cartoon that kind of emphasized how people can just be so, uh, so positive and confident all the time. And it's, uh, it showed a picture of a guy coming out of the bathroom and he has toilet paper trailing behind him on his shoe. And the phrase underneath the, the, the poster said this, confidence is what you have before you understand the situation. <laughs> I shudder to tell you this, but I have preached entire messages with my fly down. <laughs> now my wife checks me before I come up here. But <laughs> now that's how worldly optimism looks at the world around us. Sometimes you just ignore reality. And you just wish and hope that things are true and that things are real. Today, we call this the power of positive thinking. Al, uh, William Ward put it this way. If you can imagine it, you can achieve it. If you can dream it, you can become it. I have counseling that I'm doing where I have to listen to these tapes. And the tapes are, you don't have to eat that sugar. You can do that. And it's got music playing behind it. And it's supposed to be rewiring my mind. I don't know about that. <laughs> because, you know, there's a box of donuts back there just before I came out here. It's still calling to me. My mind hadn't been rewound that much by imagining it or dreaming it, okay? <laughs> I'm in the real world. And so Joseph is not a worldly optimist. He was a God-driven realist. He understood his situation. How? Because he understood God. How can Joseph, that's our third point this morning, how can Joseph live like this? Don't forget, and this is key, guys, God had given Joseph a dream, a number of dreams, and, and we're going to see even more of them. He had given him a vision. He had given him, dare I say, a promise of what his life was going to become. And guys, I'm here to submit to you this morning, if we want to stand and persevere like Joseph, then it's going to take a vision of what God is doing in your life to be able to do that. Joseph, I, I, it's how I keep going in ministry sometimes. Why I, I, We are told in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 7 to walk by faith and not by sight. 
Now, is that blind faith? No, that's what the world thinks faith is. But, that, but f- blind faith is not blind faith. It is faith in God. And it is faith in his promises. Or in Joseph's case, it's faith in the vision that he gave him, the dreams that he gave him, the promises that he made. Joseph had his promise. God is going to bless him. And for Joseph, no tragedy, no difficulty, no setback in life is going to rob Joseph of that promise. Why? Because he simply believed God. Someone once said, in this life, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And I know what many of you might be thinking right now, wouldn't it be nice If I had that kind of a promise, wouldn't it be nice if I could have the faith of Joseph in a direct promise from God? I wish I could dream like that. My dreams don't sound like they're from God usually. I got news for you guys. You do have that promise. If you know Jesus Christ today as your Savior and you're following him as your Lord and you've accepted his gift of salvation, how do we do that? Again, the ABCs. Admit your need of Jesus Christ. Believe that he came to this earth and died for your sins and then choose to accept his free gift of salvation that he's giving to you or he's holding out to you. And I submit to you this morning, guys, you have a far better promise than Joseph has. You have a promise like Joseph that you need to keep in mind. Let me give you some examples of some, and I encourage you to write these these passages down. John 16, 33, Jesus is speaking, and he says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Now notice, he's not pie in the sky. In the world, you have tribulation. Boy, Jesus knew that. But take courage, he says, because I have overcome the world. And in him, we have peace. That's our promise. That's our dream, if you want to put it in that that, uh, category. God is a God of hope. God is a God of promise. But we need to take him at his word. The apostle Paul wrote in, in Romans, he contextualized our storms. He says, not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations, our storms, if you will, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. James tells us one of my favorite verses. I probably quote this more than any other. James 1, 1 and uh, 2 and 3. He says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on and on. But you, you get the idea. Romans 8, 28. Many of us know this one. And we know that all things, God calls Causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is a promise we have. And notice that he's not saying here that all things are good. That would be crazy. That would be a lie. All things are not good, but all things are caused by God. It says no matter what happens in your life, whether it's brought about by your own actions or the actions of others or the plan of God, all things, he says, work together for good with two qualifiers. You love God and you're called according to his purpose. You know his son, Jesus Christ, is your savior. If you don't fulfill those two, you're kind of on your own. But you can know those two. You can experience those two and have this promise as well. 
How do we withstand those difficulties in life? How do I make sense of the suffering that I'm going through right now? Because we know that God loves us. We know that he has, as the track says, a wonderful plan for our lives. He defines wonderful, but even if it doesn't feel good, it's wonderful because it's his plan. That's what we see and are going to see in the life of Joseph. Israel was in bondage by God, by the way. They were in a storm. And what does God say to them? So a lot of you know this passage, Jeremiah 29, 11. And realize that God says this in the midst of bondage that he placed them in. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Now, we often think of this as we, we, we come up with this one because things are not going well in my life. And, oh, well, God knows the plans for me. And we automatically think that's got to be good. Realize in the context here, the plan of God at this time was to have them in captivity was to have them in slavery. That was God's plan. He was working in their lives through that. Plans, he says, for prosperity and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And what you're going through right now is part of that. Some of you know C.S. Lewis, probably have read some of his books. The life of C.S. Lewis is, a, is an interesting story in and of itself. There's a book called Shadowlands. Actually, it was made into a movie as well. And he got married later in life, and then his wife got cancer and died, and he wrote about that. Uh, and he became a Christian later in life. He was an avowed atheist for most of his life. And he became a Christian later in life, and it turns out that the death of his wife actually increased his faith. He made this statement, God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. And he says, when I went through this struggle God became so much more real to me. Paul said as much in his letter to the Corinthians, speaking of the difficulties that he experienced in ministry in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Look how he terms what he went through. And you know, the apostle Paul was persecuted and stoned probably to death, probably was raised up again. I mean, these are the kind of things that happened to him for our momentary light affliction. <laughs> That's how he terms it is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. What he's getting at here is the struggle that I'm going through now, the, 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 the persecution that I'm experiencing now, it's like a wisp. It's going to be over. It pales in comparison to the entirety of eternity that I am going to spend in glory with God perspective can have a powerful impact on you. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Romans 8.31. Romans 8.31, or at least write it down, 8.31 to 39. Guys, we live in a real world. If you hear nothing else this morning, realize that's what we're getting at today. It's a real world with real troubles, real pain, real suffering. I think there's this sense that some people have that it's, it's, uh, it's more spiritual to deny that, that God allows any pain in my life or allows any suffering in my life. And then there are those heretics that teach that the only reason you have pain and suffering and the only reason you don't have enough money is because you don't have enough faith. Guys, that is heresy. I mean, look at the people just in the words, in the, in the pages of Scripture. They, there's a couple of them that did okay, but the vast majority of them, by the standards of the prosperity preachers, would be out of the will of God. And that ain't true. 
Guys, we will have failures. We will have disappointments. We will know heartache and loss. But in the midst of all this, listen to what Paul writes. What shall we say to all these things? This is verse 31, Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who is against us? For he who did not spare even his own son but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's us, by the way. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who now intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And I could add that guy or that girl or lack of money or the economy or living in California or whatever you want to throw in there, guys. Just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're going through something, and every one of us here is going through something, it's just life, right? But some far more than others, you need to maybe even commit this passage to prayer because I, 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 I challenge you to be discouraged, to be defeated, to be downcast in the midst of sharing, of, of, of making this a part of your experience, of reorienting yourself to God's perspective of what you're going through instead of steeping yourself, as we often do, in my perspective of what I'm experiencing and what I'm seeing. God has a far bigger view, and you're going to live with that for a far longer time than the the, the, the brief time that you have here on this earth going through what you're going through. And Joseph is a young 17-year-old guy who understood all of that and put it into practice. And that alone is what makes him unique and who he is. But he's not unique in the sense that none of us can achieve that as well. He was a normal guy who just decided, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to take God at his word. If God says it, I'm going to believe it, and that's going to settle it in my life. Amen? Amen? And any one of us can do that, and hopefully we strive towards that, and we encourage one another, and we hold each other accountable to be those kinds of people. Let me give you a couple of takeaways. The first one is this. I, I look at this passage, and I ask myself, what is the natural response to my circumstances? I would love as your pastor to be up here and tell you that, oh yes, I go right to scripture. I, I go right to the promises that I've, you know, I've, I've memorized God's word and I've got it in my heart so that it can impact me. Uh, yeah, I eventually get there. But more often than not, my natural response is, what did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? Is God mad at me? Is it? I have all these things before sometimes I get to that point. I'm working on that. Pray for me. That's why I love my life group, because they get to hold me accountable for things like that. Number two, what, what does my response demonstrate? 
I hope my response, I would answer for myself, you need to answer for yourself, but I would hope my response demonstrates to the people in my world that I'm living in a real world just like them. You know, people aren't impressed with our prosperity. The people around us that don't know the Lord, they're not impressed that I never get sick and I got all kinds of money. And they're not impressed with that. You know what they're impressed with? And I think it's why God does it. When we go through struggles just like them, and somehow we persevere. I mean, I've actually had people tell me, well, of course you Christians, you know. It's, it's, was that not what Satan said about Job? Of course Job follows you. Why? Because it's, it's paid off for him. He's rich. He's got, you know, a great family. He's got business. He's got money. And I am convinced that people in the world will think that of us were it not for the blessings of the struggles that I go through just like them so they get to see me actually put into practice what I say is reality in terms of how God uh, goes with me through these things. Number three, do God's, promise, do God's promises to me give me hope? And that's what I hope you see this morning is that Joseph is not an outlier. Joseph had promises from God. Yeah, he had it in the form of dreams, very specific dreams. But I would tell you, if you go through Scripture and start looking up the promises of God, you can Google that, the promises of God to Christians, and it'll give you a page after page after page of promises. You will find that we also have those direct promises to God, and it will give you hope. Not Ed Norton's hope, not that I'm just going to float through life and somehow make it. There was a time when, as you read in Scripture, Mark, 4, 30, Mark chapter 4, where Jesus and his disciples are on the, the sea. And the sea is, is, is uh, pretty rough. And in fact, these guys, many of whom were professional sailors, were scared. I mean, I, this, this was truly a dangerous situation. But where was Jesus? says he was up in the front of the boat asleep. I'm thinking, man, this guy can sleep anywhere. I was a truck driver, so I know guys that can sleep anywhere. But I mean, if, if he's, gonna, he's able to sleep in a boat that these, these professional sailors think is going to swamp and kill them all, so they wake him up and say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing here? And Jesus gets up, and in the original language, it's like he said, you know, we, we always hear he called out to the sea and calmed the sea. In the original language, it's like he said, all right, simmer down now. It's like what mom does, you know? <laughs> Be good. Okay, be nice. That's, that's kind of the wording that is used there for what Jesus said to the sea. And I remember one time a guy, as he was reading through that, it, it real, he realized that Jesus also wants to calm the restless waves and the, sea, the seas that were going on in his life. And that Jesus, with that same voice of love, could calm his fears for what he was going through as well. Remember what Jesus said, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, be encouraged, as he says, I have overcome the world. Amen. Yeah, amen, for sure. Let's pray. Father, I, help us, I, I ask that you would help us to see when we are suffering that thanks to Jesus, we are never alone in this world if we know him as our Savior. Help us, Father, to take, that, take him at his word and to actually trust him even when things look bad, even when I can't understand. 
Lord, comfort us when our plans, our hopes, our dreams fall apart. Help us to see that if that's what's happening, your love hasn't waned. It's just that you have a better plan for us. Lord, help me to depend upon your love and not on my own ability to figure out why things are happening like this. Give us confidence, Lord, in your faithfulness to us. Lord, in this world that we live in, which is it's completely uncertain, it's, com- it's, it's on, a com- on a complete uncharted course, there are new storms every day. There's rough seas, there's an unknown future, and yet we have none of that. We have the opposite of all that. And we're not floating through life. We are more than conquerors through you who love us. We thank you and we praise you for that truth May we live in it so much that the people in our worlds will see our lives and ask us the reason that we're able to live like that, that we're able to have hope in this hopeless world. We pray and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.